You're listening to Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio. I'm J.D. Allen. And I'm Sabrina Garone. To make this season, we've teamed up with a bunch of 8th grade student scientists. I'm J.D., by the way. Nice to meet you. What's your name? April. April. Nice to meet you, April. Did your friends tell you about the craziness that you're about to get yourself into? A little bit? No. All right, I want to hear you explain it. All right? We set the stage for you, right? Last week, in this room. It's dark, mysterious, crazy. No, nothing of that happened. We were in this room, and <laughs> basically, this week, we're going outside, and their whole podcast is about exploring the world, about the world, etc. You know, and last week, we talked about climate change. Don't know what we're talking about this week, but we're going outside. Before we head outside with the kids to talk about climate change, let's set the stage about who we are and where we're coming from as we tackle this enormous challenge. Our new teammates at the Discovery Science Center and Planetarium are all students of color who come from public schools in the Bridgeport area, which is the largest city in Connecticut. Sabrina and I are both white, middle class, and a little beyond our teenage years. I went to suburban public schools in New York. Yeah, I also went to public high school on Long Island, but a private Catholic college in Connecticut. We're interested to see how those differences inform how we see climate change and what the impact might be on each of us. That's a crucial point. Discovery's executive director, Erica Eng, makes about the kids' participation in this podcast. Boy, did they jump right into it, and they wanted to get behind that microphone and... They want to talk about it, and they want to talk about climate change as it affects them in an urban environment. And I think that was the key component that they really could own and teach us something. Yeah, so let's take that apart a little bit. We got into a whole conversation at one point about defining cities and that uh, urban is not the same everywhere. We're talking about East Coast urban city-like environments where urban centers in other parts of the country are very different. An urban center in Texas, an urban center in um, Atlanta, an urban center in the Midwest, they're going to look different. Every community has something unique that makes them their community. And um, i never been to Bridgeport. Wow, was it eye-opening. I mean, what a fantastic city, right? It's rich. It's got culture. It has so much diversity. There's so many languages spoken in such a small, you know, uh, 16 square miles, I think it is. When we first started this, uh, when we were kind of laying out the groundwork here, and you said um, that they uh, they really look up to and rely on the grown-ups in their life because they might not have um, stability at home. Everybody's familial life looks different. A lot of kids have been through the system um, in urban environments, and all families look different. And that could mean a grandma and a grandpa. That could mean a foster family. That could mean an aunt or an uncle. That could mean two moms and two dads. That could mean one mom. That could mean all kinds of things. And if you create trust, the onus isn't necessarily on the parents or on the caregiver. There's a larger net there, and we're part of that net because we're a community. You know, we're not just like a a science museum. I mean, yeah, we have a lot of fun stuff and technology, and the public comes there and school groups and all that, but we're a community center because the kids who come back to us time and time again, those are the kids that really know that we are their grownups, and the more we can grow that community, there's no stopping them. They're so brilliant. There's just no stopping them, and all we have to do is listen. The idea is that if Bridgeport students identify with the global climate crisis in their neighborhoods... do young people see the challenge in your community? April's giggling because she's nervous. The birds are scaring her. (laughs) 
Oh, there's some weird- This episode, we're headed outdoors to make observations, to see Bridgeport through the eyes of its youngest residents. That's the next step of the scientific method. And they've got ideas to make their home more livable in the face of climate change. Exploring solutions might give their home the best chance at survival and help save coastal places beyond their city where millions of people call home. That and more coming up next after this. Hi there, this is Rima Dael, WSHU Station Manager, and welcome to my kitchen. Um, this morning, I'm starting my day off with a croissant, heating it up in the microwave quickly, and then also making myself a cup of coffee. But I just want to take a moment to ask for your help and support to keep the stories that you hear on our air, the news and the music you rely on going. So please make a gift now to support all you hear on WSHU on our website at WSHU.org. And I hope you have a great day. Very muddy. It's a chilly day in spring. The middle school student scientists are strapped with recording kits dangling around their necks with microphones in hand. This is going to be an interesting podcast. Oh my god, that's a helicopter. Helicopter, helicopter. <laughs> Can I just get all the unedited footage of us talking? Please. I will also be recording the kids as they explore the trails behind the Discovery Center. It's quite chilly outside. How do you feel about the fluctuating weather in Connecticut currently? It's torture. One day it's hot and I'm enjoying summer and then the other day it starts snowing. Do you want it to be over with? What's your favorite season? I like summer. You like summer, why? Uh, because it's hot and it's not cold. What if it's like always summer? I would die. I hate summertime. We're bundled up in coats. There was some snow this spring that is still in clumps near the walkways. The kids were in short sleeves last week. Yeah, weather is just going up and down. It's really weird. It was, it was like, it's very like strange to see all this switching happening. Their teacher, Miss Michelle, also has a bucket of thermometers, guidebooks of flora and fauna, and devices to track wind. Okay, so I will need at least two people who are going to record how cold it is, the temperature. Perfect. Who else wants to record the temperature? Okay. Do I have anyone who actually wants to write down any of the data we collect, or is that just going to be me? Okay. Excellent. There the temperature is... 13 to 14 degrees Celsius. Uh, the clouds at the moment, we believe, are nimbostratus clouds. Oh my god, is it true that if you like lick your finger and put it in the air, you can figure out where the wind is coming from? <laughs> I think, I mean, I don't know. There's no wind. 
Ms. Michelle says the work that the students are doing is actually a common environmental practice called a bioblitz. It's a survey of the biological diversity of a park, beach, or other natural area. For instance, you might record your observations of as many plant and animal species as possible. We're entering a place where we have to be quiet because we don't want to scare our dear friends. <laughs> There are, in fact, no deer. Our deer friends are not here. In this case, while I'm in the field with the kids, we're using the data to learn about their neighborhoods. At the same time, hundreds of residents in and around Bridgeport are participating in a global wildlife observation event this month called the City Nature Challenge. It's organized by the California Academy of Sciences. Allison Young is the co-director of the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science. Generally, the term community science or citizen science for us is involving everybody, anybody in, you know, any part of the scientific endeavor. Um, and so it's, it's primarily gathering data is the most common way that people participate in community and citizen science. Kind of like crowdsourcing. Yeah, I mean, especially when we talk about, you know, gathering observations of biodiversity, um, crowdsourcing is really the best way to do it, right? That we don't have enough biodiversity scientists around the world who can document, you know, where species occur and when they occur everywhere in the world. So by uh, involving all of us in this process, um, crowdsourcing observations of biodiversity really is the best way to do this sort of work. But how does it work? The science of natural history is about documenting where species occur around the world and like understanding the relationships of species to each other. When we were starting our community science programs, we both wanted to engage the public in kind of that same, in the same science that happens in our natural history museums about, you know, documenting and understanding where species occur around the world. And also just like that fun of discovery of going out and, and being curious and looking and documenting what's around you. Using an app called iNaturalist, Allison says participants record their findings, including the name of the species and where and when it was spotted. All of that data is then archived for scientists to take a look at just this last week actually passed 100 million verifiable observations. And so it is like the largest database, like current database of where species occur around the world. And so it's allowing people to ask and answer really big questions about how biodiversity is changing around the globe, how species ranges are changing, like in the face of climate change, um, you know, which is to have this incredible data set that anyone can draw on. And it's not just scientists that have access to it. Later in this season, students will actually stumble on this data set as they do their own research. For now, they're in the field with JD and Miss Michelle, exploring what creatures live in their city. So, well, Michelle, I mean, why might we want to know more things about what's around us? Why, why are we out observing so much? Well, Looking at what animals and plants are nearby can give you an idea of how healthy the ecosystem is. Um, a good, robust um, number of animals, different types of animals and plants generally means you have a healthier ecosystem. If you have an area where there's only like one type of plant and maybe one or two types of animals, that's not really healthy. Um, that does happen a lot with human interference. We like to plant certain types of plants and trees and things like that, and that could drastically change what's there. Wayne, let's, let's interview you. Yep. Have you seen anything interesting that you think we should write down? Well, certainly. Did you write down the fungi that we found and uh, the, that little plant 
Let me check. I don't think I did. You can double check for me. Alright. Wow, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wow. What's that? That little purple plant. I don't know. What is that? Hey, look. What's that plant? Is that like a... That little purple plant? I don't know. Let's find out. We've got a couple of know, plant guys really in here. Um... I believe this mushroom, I mean, yeah, the mushroom on this tree Where is, is to be oh a goodness. turkey tail. <laughs> they're fan-shaped and they are, oh my god, I could see it. They're going down the tree, yeah. Yes, you, I you can have see glasses them. on, April. I would like to give a description of April. <laughs> she has glasses on and is still using the binocular. Like, the tree isn't 10 feet away from us. <laughs> okay, you know what? I can see it, but I want detail. Oh, okay. Okay. You can identify the leaves because they're usually three to six inches long. And they have five to seven lobes with deep U indentations. I'm reading from the sign. Don't yell at me for plagiarism. Oh, there's some weird moss or something on the tree over there. There is moss. That is a very astute observation. Sometimes the texture of trees makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Why is that? They look weird. Not even, not the smooth trees. Like, not those birch trees and stuff. But like, smooth trees look weird because I feel like I've been used to seeing trees with bumps in them. Yeah, I guess. Everything around us is weird. Can you guys hear that? There, that is a bird. Most of the sounds we're hearing is bird, though it wouldn't surprise me if a few of the chirping noises we heard were actually squirrels. Squirrels do occasionally make bird-like sounds. That is very interesting. I did not know that. I did not know that either. I don't know what I no, thought I, I squirrels sounded like, but... Has moved on. Also, if you look in the trees, you may find nests. I just saw one fly through the trees. You can find them. I think there's a nest in one of those trees over there. It's a red cardinal. I want to put that. It's in the tree. It just flew. I'm giving you a... <laughs> it's in the tree. It's right there. Look, there's another one up there. Oh, I'm putting... I'm like pointing without the microphone. I will tell you, we do have a family of red-tailed hawks in the area. Yo, oh my god, I've seen yeah. a hawk in my neighborhood, right? It was on my street, actually. The hawk attacked a small bird. Yep. I just witnessed murder. <laughs> it's the circle of life. That's it what is. they do. So, what are we taking a look at now? Uh, it's like a creek. It's a very small river. We're nearing a small stream, I believe I should call it. It is a cute stream, can confirm. Do you think there's any lost treasure in this water? I highly doubt we would find lost treasure, though this is a place that people go on field trips for, so it wouldn't surprise me if there's a coin or two in here. <laughs> I, I found a Band-Aid. Oh, there's a Band-Aid. Band-Aid. Oh that would happen on occasion, too. All right, we can move further There is a plastic bag on the ground. I think that says a lot about society. It's stupid yeah, that big corporations aren't doing more to help prevent uh, our Earth dying because their right. factories and their work is probably what's contributing most to the pollution everywhere. And I think that a lot of companies try to do a lot in uh, like advertising that they're eco-friendly and everything. And 
I, yeah, I think they're trying to advertise the fact that they're very eco-friendly, but yeah, but when they're really not, and I think it's stupid because why would you tell people that you're trying to help the earth when you're not? When you can just help the earth and tell people that you're helping the earth and you're actually helping the earth. Headed back inside, I have to say, Sabrina, I'm a bit struck by how these city kids use outdoor spaces. They have access to soccer fields, basketball courts, and ballparks. But it's not the scouting experience I had when I was their age. We'd spend weekends pitching a tent, going for hikes, and fishing. The Discovery Center is probably the closest they have gotten to being outdoorsy. What was your favorite thing about this walk? My favorite thing about this walk, um, I really liked the way that we were able to explore kind of the world around us. Um, while it's kind of cold today, um, we are still, we're starting to see the signs of spring. What about you? Uh, I guess just exploring this part because I've never been around this part of Discovery. It's also nice to be able to stretch your legs after a long day. I wonder how these differences will influence their relationship with our changing environment. If we're to learn from Allison, who leads the Global BioBlitz effort, this experience will give them a new perspective the next time they go for a walk outside. Through this process, it's a way for people to, you know, slow down and be curious and really notice how many different species are around them. And through the process of documenting them and sharing them with the community, you then can also learn what those species are without having to feel like you need to know ahead of time, um, which I think is a, a great way of, of learning, that it kind of really lowers that barrier. Instead of going back inside the way we came, we hook a right and walk through the halls of the Science Center and Planetarium. Downstairs, we have access to a massive globe by the door of the planetarium. The kids have used it before, but... I'm awestruck. They click on the display and the projectors flicker. Images of the rotating Earth change to show rising sea level projections, industrial air pollution hubs, and social networks of people. We're more connected nowadays. We have more ways to communicate and find out information from other parts of the world than we ever have before, which means we can affect change on an easier scale than maybe before. We can reach out to people across the world and together come up with something. Because while there are some things you can do locally to help out, helping out the world is a global effort. This is what Taya was wondering about earlier when we noticed litter and pollution outside the center. Who can make these changes? Because I think no matter how much we, as not corporations, people, uh, try, we're never going to match the amount of destruction that big corporations and factories are trying, are, are, are making. So I think we can help by uh, doing all the things to help the environment, but I don't, I don't particularly think that it's going to counteract uh, those factories. Next episode, we'll start to explore the discoveries our student scientists have made about climate change in their neighborhoods. Their inspiration will come from their time at home and school, our excursion outside together, and research over the next few weeks at the Science Center. I thought it might be interesting if we took the time to track or figure out our carbon footprint, which is basically just how much carbon do we generate through our day-to-day -day lives for things. 
So take out your laptops. We're gonna focus in on a few of these perspectives each episode, from concept to problem solving, and eventually look at the real life implications of what these climate challenges and actions mean. Until then, we have homework to do. So what I would like for you to do is next week, think about something that is impacted that you really care about. Ground is reported and produced by Sabrina Garone and me, J.D. Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones. Molly Ingram helped with the mixing. Samantha Simon, Melanie Formosa, and Megan Briggs did fact-checking and research. Music is composed by Samuel Davies and Aria Elon. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. This podcast was made possible by the Joan Gantz Cooney Center and the Sesame Workshop. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. The next episode is available wherever you get your podcasts.